Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the Associate Dean for Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Joining me again today are James Fennessy and Dr. Adrian Calamel, a professor of history at Finger Lakes Community College. So far in this series, we have discussed how the Arab Spring played out in Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, Libya, and Syria. Today, we're going to talk about what came after the Arab Spring in all of those countries and bring those situations up to the present day, which is May of 2019 for those of you listening from the future. And welcome back, everybody. Uh, Today, we are talking again with Dr. Adrian Calamel, who has spent the last four episodes taking us on a tour of the Middle East during the Arab Spring phenomenon of the uh, of 2011, 2012, and a couple years beyond that. Today we're wrapping the series up, trying to figure out where we've been and where the Middle East is going to go from this point on, possibly all the way up to the present day, but we'll see how far we get here. So thank you again for joining us today, Adrian. Thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here again. This has been a really exciting series, and we've really appreciated working with you. And hopefully this leads to even more collaboration, which would be excellent. But yeah, you just, you know, you mentioned the core countries that we've talked about so far. So Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, Yemen, and Syria. We've had a pretty detailed conversation about what's been going on in this region and in these specific countries over the uh, past couple of episodes. So I guess that leaves us um, with one more question. So now what? Where actually, where does that leave us? It leaves us with a huge question, right? Yeah, where where does it leave us? And, you know, it, the world spotlight was on the Middle East and looking at these countries. Um, it still remained there, really, when you look at the Syrian conflict. Um, but there's kind of like this, what's been going on underneath since these dictators fell? And has there been any type of political reconciliation? Has the economies, have the economies revitalized themselves? So in each country, it's going to present different um different situations. One of the reasons why I grouped Tunisia and Egypt together is they're going to look fairly similar. Um, With Libya and Yemen, they're going to look very similar as well, and then Syria is kind of on a side of its own. And believe it or not, that is actually winding down that conflict. We'll see what, you know, there's still little spits and fats, uh, spits, you know, of of, um, violence there, but uh, that looks as though it may be winding down to some type of conclusion what that's going to look like no one has really any idea so that makes a lot of sense so you've got these we've kind of divided these countries into three groups uh and that makes a lot of sense so let's talk about that first group that you talked about which was tunisia and egypt so what are the conclusions that we've drawn there and where do we go from here well when i look at the two countries just from the outside right now i would say egypt's got more stability than any of the countries that we're going to be looking at here has found the most stability coming out of this now um, how they got to that stability and whether it's, you know, it's all relative. When we look at Tunisia, Tunisia, it's been a, a weird pro. When you have a, a government uh, that's been run under single leader dictatorships for so many years, it's going to stifle any type of um, political institutions, civic institutions. I also talked about the large clampdown on um, religious institutions as well. So in December uh, 31st, 2014, you had a new president in place, an uh, individual who was a chief of, chief of state. The president's role, he is not, he would be more... He's not the one that's being voted in. He's the one that's kind of put in there to oversee the entire ship. In October, what they had in 2014, they had parliamentary elections. And who ended up winning was a party called the Call of Tunisia. Um, This party wins a plurality 
party form it was formed in 2012 so that'll give you an idea this is a new party that's coming together and then there's an individual named Habib Asid who becomes he forms a two-party government okay which is not inclusive it's not what the people of Tunisia were rising up in the streets about they wanted more political participation um, and his party was called the Call of Tunisia, and it's the largest, it's a secular party, and it's kind of going along the lines of the old secular way that Tunisia had approached things. But there's going to be multiple parties that have that show discontent. You're going to have Marxist parties um, known as the Popular Front. You're going to have a Islamist party known as Enahada, which is also going to have issues with this, and they're going to merge together. So finally, February 2nd, there's enough pressure in 2015 where they say, okay, we're going to have a new elections here, new inclusive government. We're going to, it's going to be a coalition government. We're going to have four parties included, including the Islamist party and the Hada. Um, which is kind of an outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood, but also has, there's been communications between them and Ansar al-Sharia, which is one of the homegrown uh, Al-Qaeda affiliates there. So you can see how this is a relatively unstable situation here. You have a series of terrorist attacks that occur, and for a country like Tunisia, one of the problems that people, one of the reasons why people rose up was due to the economy, and tourism is a big part of that economy. And when you have bad actors such as ISIS that have come into the into the region or Al Qaeda that are operating, they're going to try and hurt the government. And hurt the government, you hurt the economy. And to do that, you hit the tourism that are public spots. So there's the uh, Sioux Beach attacks where there's an ISIS claim of responsibility. 2015, June 26th, you have the Bardo National Museum attacks. Um, and what happens in in response is the prime minister the individual who's actually running the country the individual named Asid, he promises to uh, close all 80 mosques within a week uh, which is i would argue the wrong way about going about this july 30th Asid, i mean it really shows he loses parliamentary elections he has a vote of no confidence and people say okay we're gonna have to get away get away from this guy and you have a new prime minister in place he is the prime minister right now. His name's Yusuf Shahad. Uh, He's from a secular party. It's the same party that uh, his predecessor was from, the Call of Tunisia. But he's still going to be um, dealing with parties that don't agree with him. Uh, he does have a protest that arises when he tries to fix some of the economic issues. Um, and he does that with certain oil subsidies. And then people could take to the streets. And what happens is a lot of other groups will kind of gain that. Type. He, he, he stays in power. He doesn't use repressive measurements, but his government's weak. He, he doesn't have a strong political base, and they have a lot of you know, longstanding, and this is what it came back to, a lot of longstanding economic factors, as well as just really um, new political institutions with a country that hasn't had, had the experience with it. Uh, it's been under colonial rule and then dictatorships after that. So does this new government that's in place, does this in any way resemble what the, you know, the initial protesters way back in 2011 or is this look at all like what they wanted? I, I do. I think I think they're trying to be more inclusive uh, with the government. And that's one piece of it as far as fixing the um the economic piece, I think the world community is trying to realize that, you know, Tunisia's economy, if the economy falls, then you're going to have mass revolts and the individual who's in charge 
um, who's been elected through through fair elections. This is one of the places where I could say that the elections, you're not getting 100% voting for one individual. The international community is working with them. Uh, the International Monetary Fund, they extended funds through this extended fund facilita facilitation facility to try and keep their uh, economy afloat while he tries to put in these austerity measures to try and reshape that economy that was a state-run economy that was relatively resource poor and to try and stimulate that economy but they've got regional concerns it's a small country compared to the other countries that we've looked at um, you have the libyan civil war right next door and they've had a large spillover um, you've talked about one million refugees that were added to the tunisian population al-qaeda in the maghreb and Ansar al-sharia those are two other groups that are looking to destabilize governments okay isis foreign fighters that's another one uh, tunisia there's been a ISIS did recruit heavily from foreign fighter populations, and Tunisia does have a high number that were involved, that were in ISIS, and uh, they've also been involved in some attacks. There's been some reporting in places such as um, Mali, where there's been an insurgency going on there. And you have instability on the other side, Algeria as well. Um, Algeria's kind of uh, dealing with the somewhat similar issues, um, but it has better resources. So Tunisia, you know, I hope for the best. I, I really do. You have a really educated population, and you just don't have those civic institutions that were put in place and a real, true functioning economy that can work and turn it around. That covers a lot of great information on uh, what's happening internally with Tunisia. It, it might be interesting to t just talk for a second about um, how relations have changed with um, with other countries as well. I think it was, was it just last week that the uh, UN expert on illegal arms was released from a Tunisian prison? Was it that he was accused of espionage, I believe? I, I didn't see that report. That's very interesting. The Tunisian government had imprisoned him. And I thought that they had accused him of espionage because um, he was investigating arms trafficking between Tunisia and Libya. I could almost guarantee that there's smuggling going into Libya from Tunisia as far as <laughs> weapons go. Um, I'd be willing to bet my money on that. That's, oh, yeah. That, that Libyan it. conflict keeps on raging on. And, um, you know, a lot of the arms that showed up in on the Syrian battlefield originated in um, Libya. So uh, you had arms flowing out of there. You have really arms flowing out of a lot of these places that don't have control. And for them to arrest somebody that was investigating this, um, you know, I, I could see that happening because, once again, that, that hurts your international credibility, and that's going to hurt your ability to work with the IMF and be in, um, you know, in those type of relationships that are going to try and um, move your country forward instead of clamping down on whatever it may be. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> more reporting something that's supposed to be being reported. Especially if, if like you're saying that the Tunisia is not totally up and functioning yet, but it is kind of holding it together. It sounds like a little bit. It's still got all kinds of threats. There's still all kinds of, you know, terrorists that are trying to overthrow this fragile government and all that. But there is still a fragile government in place, and it seems as though Tunisia, especially relative to places like Syria. Tunisia is relatively calm, um, yes. and so it does seem like it would make for a good kind of entryway for weapons and people going into uh, the surrounding countries, Libya and all of that, to try to influence what's going on there because, you know, you got to have a safe landing port to be able to bring stuff into, the, into that conflict. 
Yes, Indonesia served, if you go back to the Algerian Civil War during the 1960s, you know, Tunisia served as a place for safe harbor for um, people that were fighting for the Algerian independence from the French. Um, there was, you know, Tunisia has always been kind of, it, it's just, you know, it's sandwiched in between a couple countries there. And the one thing that does give me hope is that it is a Compared to the other countries, it is a smaller country, so I feel if they build up the proper state institutions that work effectively and according to the laws, and everybody's following those laws, then it's easy to pass that message and, and, and make sure that you don't have that tyranny of distance that you have with the place of Libya that's three different countries thrown together into one large larger country. It also feels a bit like, other in other areas of the world, after colonialism ends, and the countries have to then build a functioning system on their own because they yeah. were never allowed to create a functioning system of their own. This yeah. is slightly different, but you know, you've got strong men in power for decades in a lot of these countries. Yeah. They create a system that works for them, but it doesn't work for anybody else. And so once that system gets overthrown, the country then has to start all over again. And so in some ways, this, this feels like it's a story that's been told in many other decolonization contexts, this isn't necessarily an outside power that was colonizing, but you could think of the dictator as kind of colonizing the rest of the country. And so you have kind of a similar dynamic where the new country now has to figure out, we have to build a government, and that's difficult to do, especially when all these people are hoping that they might exert power and influence and all of that in a way that they were not able to for a very long time. You're exactly right. Well, that's 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 nice to hear. <laughs> so let's um, let's move on to the, one of the other ones that's relatively stable. Let's talk about uh, Egypt. You, when we when we left off, there had been you know the, um, oh god, I'm getting all the people's names mixed up. But uh, Morsi and and and, and so let, tell us about Egypt. Where where did we leave off, and where do we go from here with Egypt? Well, basically, where we left off was we were looking at it with there was just a, an internal struggle as they tried to form this new government. It looked as though the um, Muslim Brotherhood under Mohamed Morsi had really kind of taken the revolution and taken it in their own direction to push their own agenda instead of the agenda that the people were pushing for which was um, an inclusive government, and Morsi was increasingly making an ex um, it wasn't inclusive. It was excluding people based on their religious principles, um, based on their religion, based on uh, what, pol what political party they were a part of. There was this increased friction that was starting to happen where people started to see Morsi just as another autocratic ruler. You combine that with Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood, as we said before, it's a lot easier to champion a movement and work in the resistance than it is to form a government and to build on or restructure the institutions. And Egypt's got a lot of those institutions. They just need to be restructured. So Morsi keeps on going along with these plans. And um, what happens is Egypt's military basically assumes national leadership. This is before Morsi's elected, okay? New parliament's in place, 2012, all right? Mohamed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood given elections in late 2012, um, and they rise to the seat of government. When they're in the government, they are not putting in the constitutional guarantees that have been communicated during the revolution. It is looking more and more repressive you have protests in the spring of 2013 against Morsi's government and the Muslim Brotherhood. The Egyptian armed forces 
they had always stood on the sidelines of this whole revolution that was taking place in Egypt. The protesters, and then when Mubarak decided to crack down, it was his secret police, known as the Mubarak. It wasn't the army. They were seen as being neutral and standing out of the whole situation. What happens by 2013 is people have seen that the military has stayed out of it, but also now the government under Morsi is dictate to the military, you need to put down this protest here, you need to put down this protest there. And the armed forces says, you've got basically 24 hours to 48 hours to fix this. Um, you need to um, be transparent. We need to get the Constitution put in place here. It cannot be along the same lines that you're going uh, with right now. And they remove him from power in July 2013 um, and replace him with an interim president. Okay, It's not the head of the military. The individual who eventually takes over. Um, it's a guy named Adley Mansour who takes over. January 2014, the voters approached a new, approved a new constitution by referendum. The one thing that was the real stickler and where people could see that the revolution had gone pear-shaped on them uh, was this new constitution. And it was getting leaked out what was going to be in it uh, rose up. And it wasn't. these were demonstrations that outrivaled the demonstrations against Mubarak. People of Egypt were saying, we didn't just topple this dictator and take this big chance to be have, you know, meet the new boss same as the old boss, basically, uh, just different stripes. So January 2014, you have that new constitution by referendum. May 2014, you have the former defense minister who's moved now into the um, public sector, if you want to call it that, um, LCC becomes president. So Egypt elected a new legislature in December 2015, okay? And this is the first parliament since 2012. So they have a functioning body in place. And, even under British rule, uh, there was this still um, there was this understanding of political institutions and how they should operate. And that's we talked about um, looking at Tunisia, and that's one of the things that's interesting when you look at Tunisia, Algeria. There were countries that were former were under French occupation, if you want to call it that, colonialism. And they weren't exposed to the same extent that the people that fell under British colonialism were to type of representative forms of government. Not that they were instituted, but there were governments and, you know, there were the bodies, the legislative bodies in place. El Sisi, he was reelected to a second four-year term just as uh, March in 2018. He's got an executive branch set up. There's a legislative branch. There's a judicial branch. You have 20 different political parties. I'm not going to say that there isn't repression taking place. If you're a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, it's probably not a good idea to be wandering around the streets. Uh, a lot of them have taken <laughs> Yeah, a lot of them. Have, and there's kind of a split within the Muslim Brotherhood. There's one there's a split to saying, wow, you really messed this up. And those individuals that supposedly, you know, Morsi and his clan, they, they're in refuge in Turkey right now. And then you have this younger younger group that say, wow, you guys really screwed this up. And um, they're not happy with the older leadership within the Muslim Brotherhood. So there's friction within even that most powerful threat to the government right now as far as political goes. Um, as far as the economy, they're still going to be heavily dependent on tourism, um, agriculture, um, you know, cotton, rice, um, corn, wheat, beans, fruit, um, industry, you're going to have textiles, um, tourism, I mentioned that for chemicals, pharmaceuticals. So you do have the 
the economy, the, the, the framework for the economy, it's how much control and how much corruption seeps in and how much the government is going to siphon off from that economy, um, taking it kind of out of, you know, the piggy bank. And that's what it had become under Mubarak, and people saw it, and I think rightfully so, that a lot of these natural resources became basically the slush fund of the Mubarak regime. Regional concerns, what they have to worry about, you know, terrorist attacks targeting tourism. As I mentioned, that's the same problem Tunisia is going to run into. You have the civil war in Libya, once again, bringing them, them up. To the east, you have the Sinai Peninsula, which is lawless. You have everything from Bedouin smuggling arms into the Gaza Strip from Egypt, probably from coming from Libya or Tunisia, making it across that, um, you know, west to east across the uh, North Africa. Um, ISIS is starting to find um, some space, but not so much in Egypt. You're finding that uh, in the Sinai Peninsula, they're finding space there as that physical caliphate that they declared in Syria and Iraq is gone. Um, they, the, the rats have kind of scattered ship, and um, one of the places where they're trying to find some space is in the Sinai Peninsula, which is joint administered through Israel, Egypt, and the UN. There is that issue there. And then Egypt also has a problem with Turkey has been asserting itself under their president. We haven't talked about Turkey very much, but um, under Recep Erdogan, they want to see themselves as the dominant player in the Sunni world, uh, rivaling both Egypt or Saudi Arabia. So um, they are pretty active in undermining the Egyptian government and undermining the rule of Sisi, al-Sisi, because um, he would rather, I mean, he is, after all, sheltering the command structure of the Muslim Brotherhood in Istanbul. So in Egypt, just to sum up a bit here, we so we've got a constitution in place, which allows for the three branches of government. It's got different political parties, and so there is political participation. Obviously, probably not perfect political representation. Some people are going to still be, uh, you know, more equal than others, so to speak. Um, Muslim Brotherhood are not welcome. Which I, and I imagine the repression of groups like the Muslim Brotherhood is probably what's inciting a lot of the ISIS and Al-Qaeda kind of turmoil, probably there. And in Tunisia, you mentioned that they had tried to shut down mosques and all of that. So, I, so there's, I'm sure, certain that that's probably fueling some of it. But overall, we have a mostly functioning system in place that's not... It's not chaos. I mean, you know, there's the Sinai Peninsula, excuse me, where it sounds like you've got three governing bodies and none of them are actually governing, <laughs> but yeah. uh, it's at least in, in theory anyway. So does that kind of sum up where we are with, with Egypt? Yeah, it kind of sums it up. You know, one thing is the Suez Canal is safe, okay, that's always um, important for the international economy, globalization, you name it. The relationship between Egypt and Israel is much stronger than it was before um, under Mubarak. It kind of deteriorated. So um, I see that as somewhat promising and being stabil uh, you know, a stabilizing factor for the region. Do and, you know, um, sorry, yeah. I don't mean to interrupt, but do you know how that's going after the recent, the U.S. acknowledging Israeli control over the Golan Heights? Because I know that Mubarak was in the news coming out against that. Um, I haven't read anything from Sisi. The latest that I've read about him is that he's trying to partner up with uh, President Trump to have the Muslim Brotherhood declared a terrorist organization. But what what is Sisi and the government, what are their, their views on that move? Well, 
if he wants to stay in power and he's a politician as well he is a military man but he's also he's functioning as a politician here he's got to come out against the Golan Heights move but in the same respect I can see why he would the big question is with the Golan Heights who do you give it back to do you give it to Syria and that's handing it over to the Assad government the Golan Heights happens to be a very strategic piece of land and you can see this happening during the Syrian civil war is that there's been a lot of probing activity by Iran and Hezbollah on the Golan Heights um, observation towers being built and stuff and it looks right down on Jewish settlements so in war you always want to occupy the high ground the question is okay if you turn that over the Golan Heights that makes Israel vulnerable and then the individuals that you're handing it over to are the same individuals that are calling for the destruction of the state probably just saying nothing about it and keeping it status quo is probably the best way to go about it um, <laughs> yeah and, and if you think about the timeline too i mean we're talking what 50 50 plus years of occupation so people i was actually listening to an interesting podcast about these younger syrian nationals living in the golan heights who are actually um getting israeli passports and it's really causing a lot of problems in the community because some people support it. They're like, you know, how realistic is it that we're actually going to be reunited or that we're going to get be pulled back under Syria? We've been living like this for 50 years. We need to live our lives. What are we supposed to do? Well, others see it as kind of capitulation, right? Like now yeah. you're finally you're just giving in. You're admitting yeah. that Israel has control over the Golan Heights. You're working within their system to get a passport. You're basically acknowledging the uh, the legitimacy of the, in their view, the enemy. So it's a really interesting location. Yeah, it's a tenuous situation. There's that Golan's the biggest area, and there's Sheba Farms. That's another area that's being uh, it's always in conflict. It's just the Golan is. It's such a strategic location, um, but also you, you mentioned that Syrians are getting passports to work in Israel, and it, it, it's it's really odd where you see individuals who are hurt on the battlefield in Syria. A lot of them are going for medical treatment in Israel. You had one of the head leaders of Hamas, one of the top leaders, um, say that denied. I think it was Hamas or the Palestinian Authority deny say you cannot if you're a Palestinian you cannot go to an Israeli hospital okay but Israeli hospitals people want to get to the Israeli hospitals well he came down with an ailment um, I think he had to have some heart um, operation done and he went to an Israeli hospital uh, <laughs> so of course <laughs> you know it's it's just I don't know where I where I'm planning on going with this it just shows you the complexity of you know, you do one thing, you're going to upset these people, and you do something else, and you're going to upset a whole another bunch of people. And um, a lot of times, politics is trying to try that fine line, and that's what guys like in, um, as we'll look at in Libya, or, and um, not so much Libya, but even Yemen, he tries to play that political balancing act. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah, and I didn't mean to introduce an entirely new topic, but you raise a good point coming out of that, is that you know, we can't simply think of of these populations as being static the same. We talked about this a little in one of the earlier podcasts, you know, national identity, um, ethnic identity being static, unchanging. It's constant struggle between these immovable or incompatible forces. What we're seeing in the Golan Heights in this younger generation is it very clearly shows the complexity of it and how people need to learn how to maneuver in the worlds in which they live if they really want to survive.
Yeah, yeah, they really do. I mean, with the first Gulf War, the one, one, the only country that really condemned our, the, the, the UN action to remove Saddam Hussein from Kuwait was Jordan. Um, and that's one of our closest allies. And that was just done out of pure political pragmatism because um, of a large Palestinian population that was largely in favor of um, Saddam's uh, going into Kuwait. So I think everybody knew that he didn't really feel that way, but he had to strongly come out because he does border Iraq. And what, hap- <laughs> what happens then? Does he have the Iraqi army streaming over his borders? So it's always got to be a very measured, calculated response, and sometimes you got to choose the lesser of evils, and that's, gosh, that's a difficult situation. Yeah, and being an ally, I would be really surprised if knowing the majority response to that, if there weren't some back uh, backdoor conversations where Jordan was like, listen, we have to come down on this side, but you understand. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And it's like us, we partner with Hafez al-Assad. He joins the coalition in the... Uh, in the first Gulf War. So, you know, it's <laughs> role reversal. Yeah. And so uh, let's move and talk about the places where such disagreements seem to be leading to kind of perennial and constant warfare. So we talked about the two somewhat stable countries here. Let's start talking about the uh, the basket cases, I suppose. So Libya, Yemen, Syria, those ones are not don't seem to be resolving themselves in a peaceful way. So let's talk a little bit about those. What's happening there and what what comes next? I'll sum up Libya's succinctly as I possibly can here. Gaddafi, he gets killed October twentieth, two thousand eleven. You have general elections that form in 2012. There's a transitionary government, um, transitional government that's going to see its way to the elections. And um, this group called the GNC or the General National Congress, as well, uh, they're also known as the National Salvation Front, gets voted in. And it's an, from all intents and purposes, it's a, there's a lot of participation and doesn't seem to be much meddling being involved, and the GNC gets elected. It is a large umbrella-type party um, associated with multiple militias. Its largest component and its largest piece of um, political group is the Muslim Brotherhood. Their name is the Justice and Construction Party, and they're within this large umbrella organization. And so they had, what you had was them elect in 2012, and the mandate is for them to elect, uh, run for two years, run the country, and then there would be another election after that. So when the general um, GNC takes, party, takes, takes control, what you start to see are some disturbing trends that are going to start to worry the population. Libya, which had been in, in, in the Muslim world, and under Gaddafi, we talked about some of the things that he did that weren't so bad. Um, it's uh, the liberation of, of women in, in um, Libya. Um, also, in, under the GNC, you start to see suppression of women's rights. You also start to see political isolation laws being put in place, which is an old tool and tactic used by Gaddafi. Um, this time, it's not being done with the secular element, it's being done with a non-secular element. Uh, When they cross the threshold, basically when they cross the Rubicon, is when in 2014, when they're supposed to have the elections, they suspend the elections. They said there's not going to be any elections whatsoever. There's this other body, legislative body, called the House House of Representatives in Libya. 
And they say, okay, well, we were supposed to have the elections to put a new head of state and a new ruling party into place. We have not had that, so what we're going to do is we're going to hold our own elections. So they hold their own elections, and this is happening in the complete eastern side of the country. So the GNC wins the elections in 2012, and their base of power is going to be, we're going to just call them the Tripoli government. On the other side of the country, you have this House of Representatives, or the HOR, hold the elections. They're going to be known as the Tobruk government. They become the internationally recognized government by over 50 nations, uh, by the United Nations, by a number of countries. Civil war has been occurring between the GNC and the HOR. You have two governments, um, one in the east, in the area that used to be the heavily religious and non-secular area, um, Sarnaika province in in Tobruk, Benghazi, areas like that. You have a secular government that's actually being run by a military man. That's in the one part of the country. And then the country that the Tripoli government is holding on to a power that they're still saying that they are the recognized government, even though nobody recognizes them and um, they're not putting down their arms. If I was a betting man, I would bet that the Tobruk government eventually wins this struggle. They have won a lot of support amongst the population. ISIS, when we last talked about them, they're starting to establish there early on in the Libyan revolution, if you remember, there was a heavy Al-Qaeda element in that eastern area in Tobruk and um, in, in Benghazi. Uh, this HOR, the Tobruk government, has really pushed them and pushed them far into the interior of Libya. Uh, so ISIS and Al-Qaeda are not gaining strongholds there. So the Tobruk government, it's being recognized by everybody. It does have the military backing. It's got the military on its side. It has the tanks. It has the guns. And it has the, the, the support of Egypt, United Arab Emirates, to name a couple, which are big countries. But then if you look at the GNC, which is this heavily... Um, you know, it's a Muslim Brotherhood government, okay? It's a Muslim government party. Uh, you have countries uh, such as Turkey, okay, that's looking to spread its regional influence. Um, Qatar, or Qatar, depending how you want to pronounce it, uh, they're also involved with helping the and supporting the GNC government. So you have a, um, a proxy war taking place with two people, two groups, two political parties that say they are should be in control. Uh, I would say the vast backing of the population would probably support the Tobruk government. Uh, the international community uh, does recognize the HOR. So civil war is ongoing. Um, whether there's um, any type of resolution to it, it's all very fluid. It's hard to say. All right. Well, that helps uh, to know because, you know, I, I always try to think which of the – if when there's a civil war that's coming out of a popular kind of revolution like with the Arab Spring, I always kind of try to figure out, like I asked before with Tunisia, which which side better represents the initial goals of the revolution. And it sounds like in this case, it's probably the Tabruk government, which again probably isn't perfect, uh, yeah. but of the two, I imagine that one's probably closer to what the original people leading that uprising way back in 2011 were actually looking for. Yes, I, I would agree. And then you have to remember, the people did vote for the GNC originally, but then the, they saw the direction over two years that the country was taking, and that's why they suspended the elections, it's just because they they just knew that they they would eventually lose. 
Libya, you know, part of the way to get these countries back on track is through economic economic prosperity. And out of all of the countries that we look, looked at, Libya sits on the vast, the greatest amount of natural resources when you look at oil, uh, natural gas, stuff like that. Yeah, and the whole canceling elections thing, it, it takes me back to what I was saying before about decolonization. It takes me back to, like, you know, the Vietnam experience where they split the country up, said, well, all right, well, in, in two years we'll hold elections to see which side's going to become the new legitimate government of a reunified Vietnam, and those elections got canceled. <laughs> so this kind of fits with a general trend, unfortunately, in that type of environment. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, look at the Muslim Brotherhood, that was also one of the conversations that we previously had. You had the Muslim Brotherhood coming to power legitimately. What do you, um, if you're a country, a nation outside of the area, say the U.S., what do you do in a situation like that where you are a proponent of freedom and you want to see the spread of democracy and then you see what you consider to be an oppressive regime be legitimately voted into power? Do you interfere in those elections? Do you allow it to play its course and then allow the people to see what happens when those people stay in power and then, you know, either vote them out or if voting out isn't an option, rebel on their own? Um, it's yeah. uh, it's interesting to I mean, how far do you as a foreign nation interfere with others if you don't agree with the way that their political system is going? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, you can throw vocal support behind it, but as we've it's just a sandpit that we don't want to get dragged into um, as far Again? as another conflict. Yeah, another conflict. <laughs> and it, it, over time, that's going to breed resentment here. You know, one great thing about these conflicts, uh, the only one that we got involved in was, was Libya. And that was not our doing. We just kind of followed the Europeans on that. But you start to intervene, and it's going to breed resentment here. I think one of the hopes and the promises was that there was this belief that all these things happened organically, and in a lot of cases that they did, and that it wasn't outside um, influence coming in to topple a government and trying to set up uh, democratic institutions. It was these countries trying to do it themselves. But as we can see, they've got a lot working against them. Does Yemen at all resemble what's happening in Libya? Yeah, it, it really does. We talked about the two different governments. What you have now in Yemen are two different governments that are claiming control. After Saleh's removal of the long-time dictator, you had this Mansour Hadi who becomes president. He was the formal VP, former VP. He takes over, tasked with forming a national government. Uh, he creates this general, uh, he's part of the GPC, which is the old Saleh party. It's a single party. You also have a JMP, which is a, uh, the joint meeting party, a coalition party of Marxists. You also have, and we're bedfellows here, Marxist parties forming an alliance, an umbrella with Islamist parties, because they see as um, Hadi just being really not that different than Salah. You just taking Salah's family out of the nepotism that's that's taken place. So what happens is. All during this conflict and leading up to this conflict and the removal of Salah, we talked about the Houthi insurgency um, and that war that's being fought between the state and it's basically the Hadi government that, that came after Salah. Uh, they're going to try and be the representative government and be the, the formally recognized government. Of course, when he's voted in, um, you know, it's 100% voted for. So, you know, Sure, that seems legit. Yeah, it's just not one person deviated. Wow. So leading up to this, you had multiple movements. We talked about there was 
UAP, uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula has one of its strongest branches, but you had this very large insurgency. Part of it was these old army generals that weren't being um, taken care of and compensated according to their pensions. You also had this Houthi rebellion. And the Houthis, if you're not familiar with them, where they're this... Um, they're a sect within Shia Islam, and they're being supported and tied to Iran. So what you have is in the Houthis in 2014, uh, they capture Sana, which is the capital. They push Hadi out. He goes, flees to Saudi Arabia. Believe it or not, instrumental into the Houthis' takeover is Saleh, the former president, He's maneuvering in the background. And I said, this guy is the ultimate cockroach, won't go away. Okay, so he's maneuvering in the background, working with the people who had originally tried to dislodge him in the first place, the Houthis, who he'd been fighting a war against for so long. Uh, when he was in power for roughly four years, he had been fighting a war with them. Um, the alliance eventually in 2017 collapses between Salah's loyalists and the Houthis, and Salah's, um, he's executed. He's basically shot in the shot in the back. They finally have had enough with him. So that cockroach, he's done. The capital, it's still going to be held by the Houthis. They're going to form something called the Revolutionary Council. It's going to pull in what you have as a proxy war happening right now between Iran, Saudi Arabia. You also have AQAP in there. You have ISIS as well. You have the capital under supposedly under Hadi's rule, under his territory. You have Aden, which is the port capital. If you remember the 2001 coal bombing, that was it's an important port and lies right around that Babel Mendeb Strait uh, that's so important to international shipping. And then you have the Sana government, which is the Houthis. So there is a civil war taking place between these two, the Aden government and the Sana government. And it's basically a Sunni, a Sunni fight against a Shia fight here. All right. And then going back to my usual question, which of these, if either of them, do you think represents the original will of the people way back at the beginning of all this? Oh, gosh. I don't think <laughs> any of them do. Okay. That, that is the scariest point about this, and it, it just gets uglier and uglier. Now you have the Houthis attacking Saudi pipelines, because the Saudis have to ship their, their oil all the way from one part of the country all the way over to the other side, to the Red Sea, to get it away from where it could be threatened, so they can ship it out the Bab el-Mendeb Strait. Um, so you have the Houthis that they actually took out a couple of took out a couple spots in the pipeline with drones. Then there was the firing of shipping coming through that port, and then our recent mobilization to the Strait of Hormuz. So things are getting they're getting really ugly there. I mean, I, I find it kind of ironic. You've got the Babel Mendeb Strait, and we talked about the Suez Canal and the importance of that. The Red Sea is so important because. And that Babel Mendeb Strait, Saudi Arabia will not ship out through the Persian Gulf in the Strait of Hormuz because they're worried about their shipping being safe and, and guaranteed. So what they do is they can go, they go to the, they ship it all the way across the country through that pipeline to the other side of the country, which is the non-oil producing in the western part of the country, to that to the Red Sea, and they either ship it north through the Suez Canal to hit the European clients or it comes out the Babel Mendeb Strait. In English, it means Gate of Tears. Um, and it comes out there and, and, and supplies the world community. You can see how it's such a critical part there, and no one really knows what's going to happen there. There's not much press coverage, 
And with all these reports that come out of here, you got to wait, you know, at least I wait till three, four, five reports come out before I can even say anything about it. So in that last group, we were talking about kind of the countries that descended into civil war because we have competing governments in place in Libya and Yemen. So let's wrap this up by talking about the last basket case, so to speak, of the region, which is uh, Syria. We went into a lot of detail with Syria in the last episode, but let's just, you know, pick up where we left off and see where we are in 2019. Sure. 2019, believe it or not, I mean, I don't want to say, I can't find the right term for it. It's not ironic, but the Syrian civil war is the one, I mean, if you have a civil war in Libya and you have a civil war in, Ye- in Yemen, Syria does seem to be the one that's winding down. Um, yes, it's, it's been extremely bloody and the costs, I don't even think we can start to think about the ramifications as far as just the destruction of infrastructure, the refugee crisis, just how that's going to impact not just Syria, the broader Middle East, Europe, and, and, and the Syrian people. So you do have, um, you know, this eight years of civil war, it's kind of drawing to a close now. Um, I would say that this would not have been possible with if Assad was trying to fight this alone. He did try to fight this alone for a little while, did not last long. The Iranians were quickly involved with Hezbollah and putting them on the ground uh, to fight. Hezbollah was not as effective. And then you start to see all of a sudden the Syrian army is being directed. The ones that don't fall under the Free Syrian Army uh, and the numbers on the Free Syrian Army can be, be disputed as to how much, how many there actually are, if there is a coherent organization. But the uh, the Syrian forces are being directed by the Iranians, and then you also have Hezbollah, which is directing the Iranians, uh, directed by the Iranians as well, um, trying to prop up Assad and making sure that he takes uh, maintains control. Uh, that means fighting against your own population and then fighting against a revolt that's been not just a revolt um, the influx of ISIS and the creation of a caliphate and the mayhem and destruction that they wreaked on that population not just in Syria but spreading down to Iraq as well and then you also have the Al-Qaeda element as well that they're fighting so there's kind of this three-way war going on with Syria and its sponsors fighting against al-Qaeda and ISIS. And that's not going that well until the Russians finally get involved. And then with the Russians um, getting involved, uh, also in that they now they own the air and they're able to start dictating the campaign. Then you start to see these heavy marches of res- these heavy centers of resistance cities such as Aleppo, and when you when you when you take back Aleppo, what that does is it opens the corridor up to Turkey. It's going to make it a lot easier for them to push out and um, and push out these elements. So, what you see is Assad and Iran, um, along with Moscow's help, what they will do is they start liberating, starting in the very southwest of the country, Damascus, the center of power, start pushing upwards from that part of the country. Most of the resistance that they're going to find is in, in the very the very upper northwest, okay, but um, bordering the Turkish border. In the Idlib province, and that's where a lot of this eventually uh, initially began. But um, those pockets of resistance are slowly being eroded and taken away. Now, what you have is, you know, the consequences of this is 
Syria was always dependent on Iran for financial help, as well as, as you can see, their military help as well. Um, they would not, the Assad regime would not have survived without Iran's um, helping. So Iran lost, as well as Hezbollah, lost a lot of blood and treasure there. What this does is it really kind of puts Iran into a position where they have more leverage over the over Assad. Assad would not be in power had it not it would not be in power right now had it not been for the Iranians. And what that does is, you know, with Lebanon bordering on Syria and Iran um, on the other side and Syria riding, running in the middle, what it does is it gives the Iranians basically safe passage to move whatever they want to um, Lebanon. And that's what we talked about before, where the Israelis have gotten involved. They've had over 200 airstrikes hitting weapons going uh, in that direction. Um, Russia gains naval bases on the Mediterranean. Now they're trying to figure out how do we post shape up this um, post uh, the Syrian civil war, and you see Turkish ambitions starting to come into this, where they want to secure little areas where there would have been a heavy Kurdish population, which Erdogan has been trying to stamp out. He's also up in Iblid province, which borders his province, and for the Syrian civil war, I'm not sure if I mentioned war before, one of the major rat lines for ISIS fighters and Al-Qaeda fighters going into Syria was through Turkey. So now Turkey is trying to negotiate a little part of Syria up to the north. Whether that actually happens, I don't think so. I don't think it's going to happen because they really don't have much negotiating power. They've managed to upset just about everybody in this conflict uh, when you look at the Turks. The results, the ramification, country's infrastructure is completely destroyed. Aleppo, which was the largest commercial district, um, it resembles World War II Stalingrad. It was absolutely raised to the ground, became a um, you know a sniper's paradise. Uh, when you look at the liberation of that city, it took it was block by block fighting um, that would resemble Second World War um, Stalingrad. The Shia Crescent, something that the Iranians are trying to work towards, uh, where they're trying to hem in the Saudi conflict and really be the standard bearer for Islam. In the, in, in the Middle East, as well as um, the world community, that that conflict, is, the Saudis are starting to feel a little bit pinched there uh, with it impinging on them when you look at Syria falling under complete, uh, I would say almost complete Iranian control, them definitely trying to assert themselves in Iraq to take over control, although the Iraqi government is trying to disband these um, Shia militias that form part of this popular mobilization front, the PMF, that helped liberate Iraq from ISIS. A large contingent of that, about 30%, were directed and commanded by Iran. So what the Iraqis have tried to do is um, dissolve that institution, or at least try and make sure that it is Iraqi in nature, um, so that they do not fall under the sway of Iran where they're calling all the shots, which I, th which I think is, is encouraging. You have the refugee crisis, obviously. Um, the pre-war, you have 22 million people. Um, afterwards, um, you know, right now you have about 6 million refugees and about internally, uh, or externally, and about six, another 6 million internally displaced. So that's about 12 million. And then there has been some really disturbing um, reports uh, that have been coming out. I need to see more of them coming in. 
before I can give him due credence, but there had been reporting coming out that a lot of the places that were occupied where a family was living there and they fled because of the civil war, what is happening is that the uh, Syrians as well as the Iranians are seeding those cities and those populations with Iranians or Lebanese or people that are Shia to try and shift the demographics so that when, let's say, a refugee should happen to come home and try and reclaim their territory in their Sunni, they're going to find uh, a, a person from Iran or Lebanon or uh, a Syrian Shia occupying their house and their land. So. Um, Whenever I see that type of thing going on, I think of Stalin moving around populations, and that is just, um, you know, social engineering almost. So it feels like, based on what you're saying here, that, yeah, on the one hand, things are winding down, but on the other hand, they're winding down in a way that is, I mean, Assad is still in power, and he's the guy that was in charge at the time of the revolution, so he's still there. Uh, It feels like external forces, especially Iran, has strengthened its influence over Syria as a result of all of this. And so, again, going back to the idea of the success of the revolution, in this case, this feels like there's nobody on the side that's even remotely on the side of the people that were initially rebelling in all of this. And so it feels like this one has come down as a decisive failure, at least from the perspective of the Arab Spring revolutionaries back in 2011. Does that seem correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say, you know, the two major benefactors of this conflict, if you want to look at it that way, are going to be Moscow, Russia. Um, They were able to reassert their influence back into the Middle East, where it had, after the Cold War, it kind of waned. And then um, Iran is also going to be the large winner. Where and then Assad, I guess he's a winner too. He holds on to power now. He's not going to have the same command, but um, he's he's still in charge. Right, he's diminished, but he yeah. is still in charge. And so I and I'm imagining that you know Russia and Iran, they're exerting influence. They're probably not going to care about the day-to-day operations of the Syrian government beyond trade and uh, you yeah. know, general external foreign affairs type stuff. So I'm sure Assad still will have a relatively free hand when it comes to dealing with domestic issues yeah. and all of that. So so basically in Syria, we've got a situation where the the trench lines haven't changed. You know, it's like the World War One analogy where there was all this bloody fighting, millions yeah. of people displaced, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people dead. And at the end of all of that, there's not a whole lot of change whatsoever. Uh, yeah. Before the war, before the uprising, before the civil war, Syria was, you know, within the Iranian and Russian sphere of influence. They're still yeah. in that sphere of influence. So on the geopolitical stage, there's no real change. And for the people at home in Syria, there's probably not a whole lot of change either. There's, you know, the people that survived anyway, they're still yeah. kind of in the same situation they were before. Yeah, yeah. The, the Syrian people are the big, big losers in this. Uh, <sighs> and it's sad. It's a, yeah, it, you do have um, great people, highly educated. I mean, just... It's just, it's sad. I mean, there's no, I mean, there's more, there's stronger words to use to, to describe it. My, my biggest worry with Syria is that now that this is winding down, does this make Yemen more volatile? Does the sh- fighting shift to Yemen? Uh, does the fighting shift to Jordan? Uh, Jordan, there was recently, just over the last week, there was a coup 
against King Abdullah. And um, it wasn't the military, it was members um, within the, um, that had ties to the Muslim Brotherhood that tried to um, dislodge him. Um, Sudan, there was a recent coup there. Uh, Sudan, that's going to have ramifications as well. James had mentioned over and over about the Golan Heights. And the question is, you know, now that this is winding down, where does Iran focus its attentions on? And I think right now you look at it. Rob, do you remember about two, three weeks ago, there was about 400-something rockets shot into Israel? Yeah. From, from the Gaza Strip? Yeah. Um, that was all, I can say now that that was all done under the direction from Iran. Uh, they told Hamas and another group called Palestinian Islamic Jihad to fire those weapons into Israel. And so that is my concern is that you're going to have other areas being tested. And the Golan Heights, there's a big concern that there's going to be something called the War of the North. Um, Israel and Lebanon have had their issues going back. And um, I'm concerned that I, I see conflict brewing on the southern Lebanese, northern Israeli border along the Golan Heights. Uh, Jordan is uh, still always going to be vulnerable, being one of those old Hashemite monarchies that the Al-Qaeda's would love to topple. So where do we go? Or does Libya get bloodier? Or does Yemen get even bloodier? Uh, what type of vacuum does this open up? So you never know. It's, it's always shifting. It's a very fluid situation. There's other countries we talked about, Iran. Uh, you look at Turkey, um, you know, Erdogan, he just suffered a major defeat um, electorally. Now he's trying to screw with the Constitution here and muddle around with it to um, have another set of elections because he didn't like the outcome of the first one. Uh, there's other countries that we haven't talked on where it's just this um, Syria we saw it where everybody got involved and now that that's resolved to a degree what's going to happen with all those energies is everybody going to say oh my gosh you know that's enough we've had enough or are people going to keep on driving towards their own ambitions and I think history has taught us anything a lot of times countries will start driving towards their own political, economic, whatever may be, ambitions, theological, whatever it may be. Yep, that sounds right. And so I guess we'll get back together in a few years and, and rehash this and see where the chaos went after yeah. Syria wound down. Where did it go? Because there will be an outlet for extremist behavior in some way or another. So it's just a matter of figuring out where that's going to be. And hopefully wherever it happens, there will be a counter response that can maybe mitigated to some effect but i guess we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out yes we, we will rob and, and for the historians that are listening they know of, like the revolutions of 1848 that swept through europe um they were put down they were put down by force with these large governments these large empires that were in place and part of me thinks that if they had played out accordingly and i'm going to use the arab spring in these countries looking at them being as countries that tried to liberate themselves from Austrian Habsburg rule or whatever rule it may be, the pressure cooker was put back on it. And it seems like this is going to continue to simmer and simmer. And I, I always think that if, I don't want to say I always think, but I, I wonder if World War One would have happened had the revolutions of 1848 been successful, um, had, uh, you know, Bosnia and Herzegovina gained its own country or greater Serbia or whatever it may be. But those those tensions get bottled up. And then, of course, you have Sarajevo in you know 1914. Um, 
and uh, then it all gets out in the open and becomes an even bloodier and uglier conflict. All right, well, we will have to see how it plays out. Um, for now, I think we can call it a day, and yeah. we will talk again sometime soon. So thank you for joining me today, Adrian. Thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate this, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Thank you very much. This was really enjoyable and a great close to this series and definitely looking forward to more. Thank you, James. Definitely. And thank you all for joining us again on this journey through the Middle East. Next time, we're going to go back to interviews with historians about their careers, but we will bring back Adrian periodically for discussions on the Middle East because this is such a fascinating topic. If you are interested in further readings on the Arab Spring, Adrian has graciously provided a short bibliography that I've copied into the episode notes for this episode. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, as always, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For James Fennessy and Adrian Calamel, I am Rob Denning, saying goodbye. Yeah, don't let worry, me, Rob. I've been, I've, been, let, I've been listening to myself, and I slip up with countries. The other day, I said, yeah, let me, let me, re, like, let me redo that. <laughs> I, just, I, I said Le- Libya was bordering Syria, and I meant Lebanon. <laughs> it was just a slip of the tongue. I was like, oh, I cringed. All right, let me, let, me, let me try that again. Yeah. Okay.